welcome to your Be Inspired coaching session. Take us out for a run or use this to get your trainers on. Come on now. This is the podcast which promises to reveal the key techniques which enabled the world's best female athletes to stamp their names among sports elite. Your coach today is the indomitable Leanne Sanderson. She won the quadruple with Arsenal in 2007 at just 17 years old. That's the Champions League, the Premier League, the FA Cup and the League Cup and went on to win the Premier League a mere five times with Arsenal. Leanne has just come back from a potential career-ending injury and in style, securing a double title win in Italy with Juventus, scooping the Serie A and Coppa Italia. Leanne has not just served club, but won 50 caps for her country, scoring the winning goal for England in the 2015 Cyprus Cup. And at 2015 World Cup, she won the penalty for England, which would seal the bronze medal for the Lionesses to recall their strongest finish in a World Cup. A dynamic presence on the pitch, Liam sacrificed her international career by backing England teammate Eniola Aluko, who spoke out against discriminatory comments made by England coach Mark Sampson. An independent investigation found in Aluko's favour and the Football Association issued an apology. It was a watershed moment which brought a new level of respect for both the women's game and the voices in it. And I'm delighted we have that powerful voice with us now. Leanne, welcome to the Be Inspired coaching session. What does it mean to be a woman of influence and power in the game? Yeah, thank you for that incredible introduction. It made me feel really, really good. Um, yeah, it feels amazing. You know, I've always, I always had a dream of being a professional footballer when I was five years old. And, you know, when I used to tell people I'm going to be a professional footballer, there wasn't even a professional league then. You know, girls didn't play football back in the day. I was only the only girl playing in an all-boys team. But, you know, for me, I've always wanted to be in this position that I'm in. And if I can help inspire people any way that I can, then I feel blessed that I get to wake up every day as a professional footballer and inspire people. And that's something that I live for. You know, that's my why and why I love doing but what I, I do. Having gone through all those great achievements that you went through, which was the highlight? Which are you most proud of in your career? Yeah, I think, I mean... When you read out my credentials, sometimes, you know, if I need a little pick-me-up, I'll go on YouTube and look at myself, not in a way like that, but I do that before games and stuff like that. Or Because sometimes it's important to remember what you've done in your career. And I'm not finished, you know, I'm not retiring or anything like that. I've still got a lot more left in me. But it's nice to go back and think about all those times you've had that are amazing, you know, because I've won a lot of things in my career and I feel really proud of that. And I think, for me, the most amazing time was definitely 2007, winning the quadruple with Arsenal, I think, you know, to do that in the way that we did it. And we were ranked number one in the world at one stage. And we had the most amazing players, the most amazing people. You know, some of the girls are still my best friends now. And that group of players that we had, you know, it was just a very unique team. And that was probably the highlight of my career, for sure. I think winning the bronze medal, um, although I would have preferred it to be gold in 2015, winning that penalty and us doing that with the players that we did, that was another amazing moment in my career. And I think, you know, just getting drafted to, to America to be turn full-time pro in 2010 in the draft system, I've won, I was one of only five players to get selected. So that was an amazing um, feeling for me. But, you know, just scoring, I mean, I've done, it's amazing when I think about it, you know, because after my injury, I, I came, I, I signed for Juventus and I scored on my first game uh, back after my injury, after being out for a year and a half. And that was a moment I'll never forget. So we haven't got all year to talk about all the things that were my highlights, but I've had some amazing moments in my career. I feel really blessed. We're calling this a coaching session to bring it away from the typical podcast of just talking about anyone, but really getting tangible benefits for it. Was there one minute in your career that really sticks out that took your game from that level of competition to an absolute great? Do you remember one thing clicking for you? 
I think there's not, I think there's many moments in a player's career. I can't particularly remember there's one specific thing that defined me, but I think there was one moment actually from my dad when I was about, when I just broke into the Arsenal first team. And I'm very lucky. My mum and dad are absolutely fanatical about football. Like my mum watches football even more than me and my dad, if that's possible. But I remember we were on the way back in the car and my mum and dad were always so supportive and they always are. And I remember my dad saying to me, he's like, darling, he said, when you're in the box and, you know, um, Kelly or Judy Fleet in a uh, pass you the ball, don't take a touch, just hit it first time. He said like, and you know how many goals I scored that year with first touch? I scored 12 goals that year in addition. So, and, he, and the way my dad speaks to me, he never was pushy. He never was saying, what are you doing? Or anything like that. He's never that kind of parent. But he used to just say to him, do you know what? You had a brilliant game today. And I said, oh, dad, what do you reckon I could have done better? That was always what I wanted. If I scored three goals, I'd say, and he'd say, no, no, you did well. He said, but if I was to give you my honest opinion, like when the ball comes, instead of taking a touch, because then the defender closed me down, he said, just sweep it into the back of the net first time. Just because he got that on my subconscious mind, I then did it. And then we were just like, so that was one moment in my career. So it's not a specific coach, but that was a moment with my dad when I was literally 14, because I broke into the Arsenal first thing when I was 14. And like, when he said that to me, it's something that stuck in my mind. And also, when I moved to America 10 years ago, my coach, he said to me, uh, Paul Riley, he taught me how to find that extra 20% in me. So when I moved to America, I'd already done a lot in England, won the Champions League, done all that. And, you know, but then when I got to America, I was like, wow, I was like, I'm going to have to step up my game here. And it felt amazing, like, to be in a team that I wasn't like one of the best players or stuff like that. I was still a good player, but these girls were like, you know, top, top, top internationals. And I was only this young kid, just like 20 years old. And in America, that's pretty young. In England, that's not that young in football relation. But like, you know, so for me, like Paul taught me how to push myself that when I'm really tired, like, <laughs> and shattered, you know, you've got that extra 20% you can tap into your mind. And now when I get tired, I've found that in me. Does that make sense? Like he pushed us so hard mentally, physically, psychologically, physiologically, that you feel exhausted at the end of the season with Paul Riley. And now that's why, I mean, his team has won the league four times in a row in America. And they're not the best team in the league on paper, but they have the right mentality and that's why they win. So him teaching me, because we used to do the beat test in England, the yo-yo and all these fitness tests. And I never come at the bottom of the group, but I was never at the top. You know, I was like, kind of like, oh, I'm tired. So I'm just going to stop. I can't do it anymore. Whereas I went from being, when I got to America, I would say in the bottom half of the group to in the top three fitness wise. They are two really big markers, aren't they? And, and it's really interesting how people get advice. And it reminded me of a story when Harry Kane, now the Golden Boot winner, got the advice that your dad gave you. How old were you? 14. 14. He, Harry Kane was asked recently, only two seasons ago, just before that Golden Boot moment, how he was suddenly scoring so many goals. He's like, oh, Bradley Allen at Tottenham one of the coaches from the youth coach said, oh yeah, take, take it on first touch. You're taking it on second. He actually highlighted it oh. to him. And he said, that's behind, that's why I'm scoring so much is why I'm scoring so well. So your dad was well ahead of the coach's yeah. influence. Well, I'm lucky. I'm lucky <laughs> my dad's very knowledgeable, but that makes me happy that Harry Kane had the same, shows I'm in good company. Yeah, you are in good <laughs> company, but also the 20% as well and pushing yourself that extra bit further when you already think you had. Yeah. The, fit, the, the rise in your fitness levels is spectacular, isn't it? Yeah, I think, you know, you can, people can take on information, but you, it's one of those things, em, implementing it. But, you know, I'm all, I'm all for learning, like I said, and, and, you know, taking it to the next level. And, and I'm really grateful that, you know, I remember that conversation with my dad like it was yesterday. I wonder if I can ask you now about these crazy, strange times we're living, life in the time of coronavirus. How are you using sport to understand all this? 
Yeah, I mean, I think mentally, you know, it's difficult. I, I almost go back to when I was injured. You know, I was injured for a year and a half and three of the four, four, three or four months, I couldn't even leave the house. I was in a leg brace and stuff like that. But my body didn't really want me to do anything. It was almost like recovering incompletely in its entirety. And I think, you know, it's almost like I've lived this before. My mum even said to me, she said, you know what? She said, now I think people might really fully understand how it feels when you had that injury and how difficult it was on your mind. Obviously, this is far worse what's going on in the world than my injury, to be honest. Like, it really is. But for me, it's like, it's not been easy. I'm not going to lie. You know, I'm always open and honest. I'm quite lucky because I've been able to train with my coach, Nikki Hollander. I love human interaction and I love that, like, I don't know, like that, that, and, and people underestimate that. Even if you're going to work, like some of my friends that work in banks or they work like as teachers and, you know, a lot of times you very rarely hear when you say to someone, how is, how's your day? They're like, oh, I don't like my job, don't like my boss or whatever it might be. Whereas all my mates are now saying, can't wait to get back to work, <laughs> yeah. can't wait to see my colleagues, can't wait. So I think it's made people really put things into perspective. Yeah. I don't think we necessarily needed to put things into perspective like this, but like, cause it's very, very heavy. Do you know what I mean? On the world. And it's really, sometimes it makes me sad and I try not to think about it. I stopped watching the news a long time ago anyway, cause I think it's very negative and it's, you know, it's important to know what's going on, but I want to flip it and say, you know, how many people have recovered? We need to start seeing more positive things as much as it's awful. And my heart goes out to every single mm. person affected. It's horrible. But I obviously want there to be more like, not positive necessarily, but let's think about like, we can get through this, you know? Yeah. I want to talk about serious stuff as well in terms of this crisis, because FIFPRO have come out um, and said that they're very concerned, spoken out about the men's game, but very concerned for the women's game that is facing an existential crisis, that because the contracts are quite often short, because the sponsorship of the leagues is sporadic, and because actually... The formulation of the rights and the medical costs and the medical cares for players isn't executed in a global level or controlled on a global level that they are concerned for the welfare of women in the women's game, but also for the women's game as a whole in terms of its progress now. Yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking this the other day because in America, the NWSL, the National Women's Soccer League, it only runs for six months. So, and the players only get paid for six months. And that's starting in March and usually ends, you know, September, October time. The men's game is losing a lot of revenue, but they're going to make that revenue back. As soon as the football comes back, they'll make that back. In the women's game, there's so much going on that needs to be kind of questioned and answered. So I'm also happy that FIFA have decided they're going to come out and they're aware of it. And I think there needs to be a lot of um, support around the women's players as well as the men. FIFA are saying the big problem is that the infrastructure isn't being controlled on a global level. I think in the women's game, it's so all over the place where the league in America and the league in England, they don't work hand in hand. Like they're completely the opposite. So when, for example, players play here for six months, right? They can only really go to play in Australia. And that's because that league's for three months. So you've even got someone like Carly Lloyd, who's one of the best players in the world. She came to play for Manchester City for three months in her off season from America. So that's not, you wouldn't see that happening in the men's game. You wouldn't see, and that's because we have to, because we have to keep trying to earn a living, you know? So there's not a contract that pays you all year round unless you play for your national team. And in America, I mean, there's so many players that don't play for the national team that have to earn a living. So I think if FIFA could really do something along the lines of trying to build a unity with all the different women's leagues all over the world, that would definitely help because I think there's too much separation you know, I think definitely, like I said, the only place that people can go to is really Australia. And that's not good. You know, nobody, I've played since I moved to America, 
I've played for probably, since I left Arsenal, about 10 different teams. And people say to me, Is that, how do you do that? I'm like, it's not really by choice. It's because there's like, okay, the season ends and you're like, okay, how am I going to make money? How am I going to keep playing? Not even just money. You can't take a break for six months from football, you know, and then come back. So I'd go to Cyprus, play Champions League, and then come back to my team in America, the same team. So, you know, that's why I've played for so many different teams because you have to keep playing. You can't take six months off. So I think FIFA should really try to do a better job. In terms of that, and we talk about pay and equality, and we've seen what's been happening in America. For the, for the game here in the UK, what do you want to see happen? Is it more about getting equality in terms of facilities and coaching, or do you want to see equal salaries? I think, obviously, I mean, my opinion, obviously they're bringing in more revenue at this moment in time, but I don't think they've given us the opportunity to try and I've always said that, you know, it's like anything. I love Beyonce. And if Beyonce is coming in concert, I know. Because I see it on her Instagram or wherever it might be, right? If you don't promote the game, I've always said this, even from 10 years ago, how do people know to come? So now, to me, it's not a coincidence that there's more publicity around the game. There's more promotion. There's more people like, able to see on TV. There's a women's football show. Things like that. Like People are like, oh, do you know what? Never watched women's football before, but I absolutely love it. Never had the opportunity to see it. You know? So it's great that, like, people are becoming on board with what women's football is. And I think it's going to continue to grow and hopefully it can be. I hope that we can just get more attendances at games, you know, because I think we're celebrating when there's 2000 people at a game, but for me, that's still not enough. There needs to be more people. And I don't know why I've always said this like in, in America, in my first game for Orlando pride, there was 24,000 people. We, we broke the record in America, right? First game in all real game. After that, everyone had a great time. And the thing about the women's game is you get to meet the players nine times out of ten. Take a selfie, get an autograph. And I think that's why people like coming to the games because there's more, more of a connection with the players, if that makes sense. But, you know, for me, then people started to, like, the tennis got lower, went to 18,000, 16,000, 12,000. And last year, Orlando had, like, 2,000 people at their game. So I'm thinking to myself, where, why is it that it's hard for the women's game to sustain the attendances? People come. They have a fantastic time. It's a great game, great product. And then people just seem to be like, go away. And, and I don't know why that is. Even at Wembley, you know, you get 90,000 people at the game last year, I think it was. When we played, there were 65,000. And then we'd go and play at Boreham Wood on, the, on a Sunday and you get maybe 1,000 people there. And you're thinking, where's everybody gone? Because that's me and I'm a kid and my mum and dad or whoever, like, took me to a game. I'd be going to every single game, especially when the tickets are about a fiver. So that's something I've never quite understood where everybody disappears to. And I think there's a lot, there's a big drive between the FA and the big sponsors now who are sponsoring the WSL to really get that going with dadvocates, getting dads to take the girls to the game, not just the mums to start being interested and try to really plough that on. But that is the big, the big challenge now and maybe an even stronger challenge coming out of the coronavirus. I don't want to talk about negativity forever, but it seems like the right window to do so. Um, and I want to talk about you supporting any in her quite right decision to go and chase down the England coach for using discriminatory language, um, which he was found guilty of and the FA apologised. He'd already left his post by the time that conclusion was met. How disappointed were you at that time that the two of you had to go out on your own and how hard was that day before you sat in front of the select committee, the British government, and I have to say you wowed everyone by your argument and your speech, which was 
truly something that resonates in my mind is as just set back in a moment of time that people took both the women's game but the women in it really seriously yeah you know i think when you're honest um with what you're doing in anything it's easy to do isn't it it wasn't an easy time for myself so to speak like or any but i can speak on behalf of myself like it was quite stressful because obviously like we knew what was going on behind the scenes for quite a while before it actually became public and it only really became public because they weren't accepting responsibility so we would would have preferred to have done everything behind the scenes you know nobody wants all the drama and all that but because they weren't accepting responsibility or ownership that's why we had to take things to the house of commons and you know damien collins and thankfully damien collins mp was um willing to investigate it properly was it was it like was i nervous and stuff not really the night before myself and any stayed in a hotel in chelsea and we just kind of acted like normal you know we both knew it was going to be a really big day the next day but because you're being honest and telling the truth it didn't feel um like it was difficult to do because it almost felt like my conscience was clear but for me i'll be honest with you one of the uh, one of the things that's really been hard for me is I would say I had a fantastic relationship with everyone on my team. And you can ask any of the girls. Like I was always one of those players that, yeah, I had closer friends on the team, like best friends on the team, because you're with each other all the time. But I could speak to anybody. I could go for a coffee with anyone. I could sit down with anyone. And I was always there for my teammates when they needed me, even if we weren't best mates. And I think anybody would tell you that. So for me, the hardest thing that I've had to, to process is feeling disowned and not supported by people that I thought were my friends. I would say I speak to about 70% of the squad and that's mostly because I don't live with bitterness or animosity, but really most people say to me, why do you even speak to them? They left you, you know, nobody helped you. Whereas for me, I don't want to live with animosity. I'm not that kind of person. I want to rise above it and carrying around that bitterness and stubbornness is not going to get me anywhere. You know, I've never felt that way. I'm not that kind of person in general, but for me, like definitely feeling like not supported by people on the team was hurtful that I thought were my best friends. That was hurtful. And that continues to be hurtful, to be honest, because I was best friends with some of those girls for like 15 years. We grew up together. But, you know, like I said, I don't carry it around with me. It's just disappointing to say the least that people knew what happened and didn't do anything about it. And because Annie's my friend and stuff like that was my friend doesn't mean that I'm going to just support any because we were close. I would do it for anybody. And if I was in that room when he said what he said or was around when he said what he said, doesn't matter if I'm your best friend or met you for one day, I would have done exactly the same thing as I did for any because I think it's about doing the right thing. Now, just to reiterate, I'm not perfect in life. Nobody is. Don't get me wrong. And I don't think I have all the answers and I don't think I'm perfect. But what I do believe is, is telling the truth and being honest. And that's something for me was very disappointing that I felt like, the girls could have done more as opposed to they did take Mark Sampson's side. They celebrated with him. And then the next day he got, you know, fired. And when I saw those girls running over and celebrating, it did feel like a complete kick to the stomach because, you know, it wasn't that we were being dishonest and they knew that. What the two of you did was so impressive because you were very much alone in that fight. Mm -hmm. 100%. I wonder what you think now and how concerned you are because we talk about the stands, you talked about that and you know, you are a fan, you're a Man United fan, I'm not passing any aspersions on, on fans, but we know what it's like going to games. And, and, and when, football, when football's tough and people need to come together, I don't know anything stronger and better. We've seen that 
with the coronavirus crisis. We, Matt Hancock really picked on the wrong people. Um, we've seen how great and how good it can be. But in terms of racism and in the stands, do you fear it's getting worse? And what would you like to see being done? Well, you know what? I think we've seen a rise in it, but I think it's always been there. I definitely think it's always been there. I've been at games before where people have said stuff, derogatory words about like sexuality and stuff like that. And then they want to like put their arm around me and my girlfriend. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Because they don't even realize what they're saying is, is wrong. And I almost like, imagine me, like me and my girlfriend, I'm not going to always correct people if I feel scared, am I? So you might tell a steward or you might tell somebody, but then what that person's going to then start kicking off at you saying you're a grass when they're walking out the stadium. Do you know what I mean? Like you feel scared. So that's something that I've certainly been in situations where I felt a little bit scared before to tell somebody at the stadium. But I think, you know, it's always been there. And I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of campaigns like kick racism out football. And I think they have great intentions, but I think it's one thing having intention is one thing implementing, um, what's actually the reality. And I think it's great that they go into schools and they do workshops about, you know, what you can and can't say, because I think it's to do with education. You know, I think a lot of people are very ignorant. And I think if you're taught right from wrong, everyone takes right from wrong differently, don't they? Some people do bad things, some people do great things, but I think it comes down to education. And I think, you know, there's not enough people out there that are willing to be like, that story recently, was it the goalkeeper? No, not the goalkeeper, the kid that reported racism. And it only came out, the guy was still playing. The lead goalkeeper, wasn't it? Yeah. And he got, yeah. And it took them six months. And like, the guy was still able to play. It took them three to six months to come to a decision. And like, that's not nice. Do you know what I mean? So we need more people out there that are willing to fight, but not, they're not, they're willing to tread on people's toes, let's say. Not just say, okay, I'm receiving money from the FA or uh, it's a complete conflict of interest. I think we just need more people out there that are willing to actually fight on behalf of the players and not just wear like a t-shirt to say we're kicking racism out of football. And that's no disrespect to kick racism out of football. I think they've done some fantastic work, but I think it's a lot more than wearing a t-shirt and wearing a wristband and things like that. I think stuff needs to continue to be done. But at the end of the day, there's only so much kick racism out of football can do because if someone's racist and they're saying racist terms, they kick racism out of football can't then completely change a person's perspective. But I think what we've seen, because certain leaders in the world are able to say certain things, I think it makes people then think their opinions are allowed to be said. Mm. And I think that's the problem. In terms of Leanne, though, I want to bring it right back to you. Now, typically, I'd say we're going to get on a plane to go to Hollywood. This is now time for the Be Inspired Academy Awards for you to pay tribute to all the people that have been inspirational and important in your career. It's at this time we're going to introduce a music bed and bring on the Be Inspired Orchestra and start the strings, please. Um, and we're going to ask Leanne, first of all, before she takes the stage for her uh, acceptance speech, to tell us, you're coming along on the red carpet what are you wearing? Your prize designer, the outfit of choice, what will it be? Ooh, that's a good question. I like designers like Alexander McQueen and I like Michael Kors. Um, I'd probably be wearing like either, see, I'm the kind of person that can wear a dress or wear a suit and I like wearing suits and bow ties. So I'll be wearing like probably a nice polka dot suit or stripes or something like that. Nice shirt, shoes and always hair looking fresh. But right now, 
my nails are looking the worst they've ever looked during this time. I just and saw I'm, those. They're looking good. No, 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 no. I hid them. I'm not even going to put them on there because they've grown out the acrylics. <laughs> people that know me will know how much I love my nails and my hair. I was lucky enough to be able to get a haircut like last week, a couple of weeks ago, actually, because the, my barber was able to come round. So that was amazing. Um, the rules have changed a little bit now. But yeah, I, I love going to awards and stuff like that. So I like that visualization of going to the Oscars, maybe next year. <laughs> Very nice. And if you had a choice of your walk-up song, what would it be? What's Leanne's anthem? Ooh, you're putting me on the spot yeah, here. Yeah, I mean. It would be either something like Beyonce, a Beyonce yeah. song, or um, Drake. I love Drake and I love listening to Drake. I've been to see Drake in concert like five or six times and I absolutely love him. So I'd probably say a Beyonce song or a Drake song. Good choices. What's your inner funk song? And you're in a real funk and you just know there's one that will always get you out of it. Do you know what's so crazy? And this is going to sound so random because my mates say to me, how do you still listen to him? But I absolutely <laughs> love Will Young. Oh, yeah. I absolutely love Will Young. It's almost <laughs> like a guilty pleasure. I'm not ashamed to say it either. And it's funny because... I've always loved Will Young from back in the day, but I love his lyrics. I love his songs. And if you're, you know, if you're in a bit of a funk, like I prefer to listen to upbeat songs when I'm in a bit of a funk. But then before games, I actually listen to slow songs oh, more really? than upbeat. I have like a different type of playlist. So I'll listen to slower songs. I also love Florence and the Machine. Like Florence nice. and the Machine is one of my favorite. Um, I would say my go-tos when I'm feeling a little bit like I need a, need a full, um, like feel better, even though it's a little bit more like depressing, the type mm -hmm. of songs. <laughs> I love listening to um, Florence and the Machine and Will Young and a bit of Westlife as well. Well, you just, Will Young, bit of Westlife, bit of Westlife. Your credentials are dry. <laughs> I know, well, I'm really, not ashamed to say Cheese is good, cheese is good. I'm with you, I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got Will Young singing you onto the stage and now I'm going to really put you under pressure. I'm going to give you a minute for your acceptance speech starting now. Thank everyone that's oh extended God. your career and go. Okay. okay, I guess I'm accepting this award on behalf of everybody that's helped me throughout my career. My mum, my dad, my whole family, and everybody just helped me, helped me along the way from that young kid at the age of five years old that wanted to be a professional footballer. For those people that told me I would never be a professional footballer because it didn't exist. I always believed I would be a professional footballer and it just goes to show if you put your mind to anything, you can do it. So I just want to thank Vic Akers for finding me when I was nine years old in South East London playing for Elms when they recruited me as a boy because they thought I was a boy because of how I played. Um, and as I got closer and they saw my little ponytail, they were like, oh, actually, she played, she's going to sign for Arsenal ladies. So that was amazing. I just want to thank him and everybody that's helped me throughout my career, but most importantly, my mum and dad that have been there for me throughout everything. You've done it. You did it in a minute. Who did you forget? Who did I forget? Did I forget? Who did I forget? I'm not saying you've forgotten anyone. Normally, sometimes in the Oscars, someone then go, oh, forgot, to, forgot the oh, director. No. That's the worst you one. You know what, though? I absolutely would probably talk about Manchester United because okay. I absolutely love Manchester United. And like, even though it's one of those things where I always try and get Man United any time that I can. Like, if I'm doing an interview and they mislead that I support Arsenal and I love them <laughs> for Arsenal, I'm always like, just like, I'm a Man United fan. Or I'll be like, oh, you know, we're Man United fans. And I was on, the, on TV with Steve McLaren and we were talking about uh, Man United. It's like, people are like, you've always got to get Man United in there. So I'll probably get Man United in there some way. But yeah, like I said, my friends and family, like, especially during this time, have been unbelievable. Good. I want to talk to you about your dad. And the fact, I think you were five years old when you asked him to go and play football and you might have had to ask him a few times. 
Yes. And he hates this story. And no one can <laughs> believe that my dad, he, and the thing is, just to always reiterate, my dad wasn't like, you're not going. And he wasn't like stopping me. You know, like sometimes you see these stories where people just don't let them do it. My dad just wasn't for me doing it, but never stopped me. So as a five-year-old, I knew my dad's friend on his team ran a boys football team, Elms in Southeast London in Catford. And I said to my dad, I said, dad, uh, will you ask Ray if I can play for his team? Yeah, all right, darling, I'll ask him. A few weeks went on, didn't ask him. I said, dad, dad, did you ask Ray? Yeah, yeah, I'll ask him, darling, don't worry. And he, I'm only five, so he probably thinks I'm going to be like, take what he's saying, like he's being honest, right? So anyway, me as this almost six-year-old kid, I went up to Ray after they'd finished their game, like my dad had played Sunday League at that time, completely. They was just walking off the pitch. I was like, Ray, Ray, I want to play for your team. I want to play for your team. He said, yeah, because all, all of my dad's football team, they knew I was good. My dad knew I was decent because I used to run on the pitch with all the kids at half time and kick the ball in the goals as you do. So Ray said to me, we've got training on Saturdays in Catford. It's 50 pence. The playing the game is £2.50, obviously. He said, tell your mum. And he knew my mum as well anyway. And I went there next Saturday, signed for the team. And that, the rest is history. And to be honest, like, my mum took me because my dad had games. And in one day, my dad's game got called off. And he always say to me, have a good game, darling. And he'd go to his game and I'd go to mine. One, one time, all these... Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. His game got called off and he came to watch the game. And I remember his inner thoughts, like he told me, he said he saw me do something and he's going, she couldn't have meant to do that. Nah. Because you, you saw my first touch. You saw me do this. You saw me do that. He's thinking, hold on a minute here. She couldn't have meant to do that. And he never missed a game since. Wow. He hasn't missed a game since because he saw like all what his teammates were telling him. Because he wanted me to play golf or tennis, believe it or not. <laughs> he wanted me to play golf or tennis. That's what he wanted me to do. And I love those sports, but I never felt like I was passionate about them. But since then, my dad's never really missed a game. He used to fly over to America once every two weeks to watch me play. Wow. And now, and we must thank the Sanderson family for supporting you and giving, you, uh, giving us a real treasure. But time really <laughs> to give you the honours, because not only have you been a fantastic servant to the game, you've also given society a great deal. You were the first England player to come out as gay, and that is no small feat, but it's left a big impact on society here in England. It's left a big impact on the WSL here in football that players can be very relaxed in couples, which many of them now are openly. How difficult a decision was that for you, and how proud are you that you led the way? You know what, for me, like I said, I'm very, very lucky that I know that my family would support me however I am. And, you know, grew up, had a boyfriend, felt great, loved him, great guy. Like, and I never really grew up, I had a different story because I never really grew up thinking I was gay or feeling like I was gay. It wasn't like I felt like I was living a lie or anything like that. I'm just me. And my mum and dad have always raised me to just be myself. And, you know, for me, like, I almost felt like it was a disservice to my partner if I wasn't open with them. And that's not me saying that other people have to be like me, but I think when you carry around that secrecy, I've done it before, like in the past, and it weighs on you. You know, when you're kind of coming to terms with your sexuality or if you're with someone your parents might not like, I'm just used, going off of the examples of people who have reached out to me to tell me like, how do I do this? How do I do that? And, you know, for me, I was very lucky that I always knew my mum and dad and my family would support me no matter what. And it was important for me to just always be myself, unapologetically be myself and be authentic. And for me, like coming out as the first England player um, didn't feel like a big deal for me because I was just being myself. But I understand it is a big deal. And I hope that it's helped people 
feel comfortable in themselves, not just players, but people in society. Because I get so many letters every day, messages, even from parents, like that kids are like, you know, going through difficulties, accepting who they are and stuff like that. I've get parent letters from parents that kids are like three or four years old that, you know, and I say to them, look, I'm not an expert just because I'm gay and I'm a footballer doesn't mean that I know all the answers. So I always put them in touch with someone that's an expert, you know, like a, a counselor and stuff like that, because I'm happy that they can, I can help them by sharing my story, but I'm not an expert. And you're talking about saving people's lives here because with what comes with sexuality and, you know, you can be depressed and people can feel like they're, they're not, they're not like, it's a strange feeling and they don't feel like they're like everybody else. And it's something that isn't nice to carry around. And thankfully for me, I never had to carry around that, that burden of my mum and dad going to accept me. They're going to be upset. They're going to kick me out of the house. You know, it was never that kind of thing. So I was very, very lucky. So for me, I just love the fact that I can be a role model to so many people in many different ways. And, and that makes me really happy. I'm so impressed with all you've done on that because it's, an amass, it's a big burden with so many people coming out and reaching out to you. Personally, I've... I'm being the person that a few people have come out to me when they've not been sure whether to tell their friends or family. So I appreciate that. And I appreciate the burden. The, the curious thing is that, or the sadness is that a, a male Premier League footballer has not felt able to come out yet. I'm incredibly uncomfortable with anyone suggesting anyone should, or it's about time because I don't think it's ever about an organization or a standard or a moment. Although some of the people that say that to me are gay, are lesbian, and they don't understand mm -hmm. a Premier League player hasn't, but it has to be an individual choice, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think it makes me sad because I don't think anyone should ever feel forced to mm. um, come out with their sexuality, male or female. I think it's down to personal choice. I think, for me, it makes me sad because there's still this stereotype of you can't be a gay male footballer, but every, they, and then other people think that if you're a female footballer, everybody's gay, and that's not true either. Yeah. So there's that whole stereotype around that. And for me, I find it difficult because people honestly believe there's not a gay, um, a gay male footballer, said both the words at the same time then. <laughs> there is gay male footballers, but they don't feel comfortable enough to come out. And that makes me sad. You know, we've had Thomas Hitzelsberger, Robbie Rogers, Robbie Rogers like retired and then came back out of retirement because he was so scared, you know, that he didn't know what it was going to be. And I completely understand that, but we have to create a society where players feel comfortable and accepted. And I do think we will see within the next five years, I genuinely do think we'll see a footballer come out that they're gay, but I don't think it should be pressure. I think mm -hmm. it should be down to their personal preference. But I do think that, Keeping a secret like that can make an impact on your performance. Impacts your life, one, but impacts yourself in everyday life. Imagine like, I know there's a lot of players probably that have told their teammates, you know, there's NFL players that have come out that they're gay and the first people they tell is their owner and their teammates, right? Before they tell the public. They might wait six months to a year, but at least when you go into the locker room or the changing room and they say, oh, what do you do on the weekend? You don't have to say, oh, you know, I was on my own or... I went here with a woman when, do you know what I'm trying to say? When you're with your boyfriend, that's something that for me would be hard to do. And that weight of having to lie. I've known friends that have had to take their pictures down in their houses when their parents come over with their significant other, because, and I'm saying, how do you do this? You know, how do you do this? Like, it must be so like 
hurtful every time they have to be like, there's pictures of them up on the wall or whatever. And then they just take them down because they want to believe that that person's their roommate. And everybody deals with things differently. But for me, I think that has an increasing amount of stress on your mental health. How did it feel the day you finally told everyone it was out in the open? The thing is, everybody already knew anyway. Like in the sense, like it wasn't like, this is this whole thing. Like, I don't really like the term like coming out. People obviously LGBTQ plus community uses coming out. And I think it's a great thing. But I just think like for me, it wasn't like I had this day where I woke up and I'm like, oh, now I'm ready to tell the world. It never felt like that. You know, obviously my friends and my family knew, but it was one of those things where I was with somebody at the time that was very open about their sexuality. And I think I saw how much of an impact she had on people by being open with who she was. And, the, and I thought, Do you know what? I know my platform is almost bigger than hers. So therefore it's like, I need to use my platform to help. And that's, I didn't even think about that at the time. You know, I thought, Do you know what? Like, I'm just going to keep being me. I don't even think people care that I'm gay. What, who cares really? Um, but realistically, I realize people do. And, you know, I think we need to get to a point where when someone comes out that they're gay, people just say, oh, okay. You know, not this big mm. hoo-ha of a party of like, oh my God, they're gay, you know. So if you look at someone like Tom Daly, you know, Tom Daly knew he was gay from when he was really, really young. And he said he struggled with it his whole life. And, you know, it's now nice to see he's able to be with his partner, Lance. They've got a baby, you know, it's really amazing to see. And I'm sure for him, when he, growing up in a public eye like he did, and he has, it can't have been easy because all the girls love him. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're getting that. I mean, it won't resonate with the whole world, but Philip Schofield came out um, or said he was gay recently and revealed he was gay. And there was a lot of shoulder shrugging and, okay, why, why is it a story? And I think we're, we're slowly getting that. Yeah, but you know what is interesting about that? When you see these great, I thought it was unbelievably brave for Philip Schofield to come out in the way that he did. And, you know, people can turn around and say, well, he had a wife and he's got kids. Well, everybody has a different story and a journey and a, and a demon that they're battling, you know. But I do believe better late than never to be open with who you are because that feeling of carrying that around. But I did see some stories as well about Philip Schofield and negative ones, you know. Oh, he's only doing this because he's now dating somebody that's half his age. And it's like, no, leave him alone. You know, and that's why people don't come out because people start making up stories that they don't have any idea what they're talking about. And when you read those things about yourself, it's hurtful, especially if they're not true. Yeah, it really is. I always like to be corrected and learn as well. What's a better example of say than what's better than saying coming out? No, no, you're not being incor incorrect in what you're saying. I'm just saying for me, people often ask me that question. It's not necessarily politically incorrect to say coming out at all. A lot of people do, I say it, but when people ask me that question, it's not like I said, I had this day where I no. came out the closet <laughs> and I had these like big, like, you know, fireworks, like, things like that, you know. You didn't. It's almost, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, everybody has a different story, you know, and everybody's different and unique in their own way. And like I said, just to reiterate, I don't think anyone should ever feel pressure to no. come out with who they are, but I do think I encourage people to try to work towards that because carrying that around with you every single day you underestimate how much of an impact that can have on your mental health because I've seen friends, like I said, for me, I never really carried it around with me because I'm like, this is my girlfriend, this is who I'm with, you know, and, and it is what it is. But at the same time, I've seen friends go through really, really traumatic times. I've seen people that I don't even know reach out to me going through traumatic times. And, and it's sad because for me, I'm like, I just thought everybody would be open and, and, and accepting because my family are. And then you realize, no, it's not like that. 
Do you know what I mean? And I, I hope that one day we can live in a world where everybody's just accepted for who they are, for race, religion, you know, sexuality. That would be my dream. Um, let's all hope that maybe this time has given many more people time to reflect on that. Um, I, I want to get away from the contentious and get back to another thing that is super important, and that's women, girls playing football and something... Mark Bullingham, who's the chief executive of the FA, the new chief executive, is very passionate about grassroots football. He's a coach of a under nines girls football team and an under 11s men's football team, I think. And he's acutely aware that there's a lot of girls coming into the game, but they haven't got a lot of women coaches. And there's a lot of women that didn't get to play football, don't know if they could help coach their kids. What tips would you give to any women out there whose daughters are playing football, any dads out there who's daughters want to play football about coaching them at that age level do you know what I think I mean I do a lot of sessions myself with kids and you know mentor kids and, and things like that and I think my biggest advice would be let your kids enjoy it don't put pressure on them let them enjoy what they're doing don't scream at them because I've been I've been coaching some kids and I've seen another coach on another field and I'm like who is that person talking to and they will be screaming at the kids and it's like, that's not good. And I've had a lot of kids, it's almost like they come to me to get coached because it's more the confidence building. Like I've had kids that are 11 or 12 years old that parents have said they want to stop playing football. Then I, I train them and they're like, and I'm not saying I'm almost this like football doctor where I make people fall in love with the game again, but you have to make every kid that I have, they feel like they're my best kid. Does that make sense? So you always want to build people up to be something and you'll be surprised at what you can get out of them. And for me, the best coaches that I've had have got the best out of every single player, whether you're number one to number 25. And those are the most successful teams I've been on. And I don't understand why coaches, parents, like I've, seen, I've heard parents say some horrific things on the sideline, not only to their kids, but to the kids they're playing against. And these kids are like nine years old. And I can end up having an argument when I go to watch, because some of the kids that I coach, I go to watch them play and I'm sitting there and I'm like, God, I want to have an argument because I have to say something because they're being horrible to the kids. And it's hard to sit there and watch that because you know it's not helping the kid. The kid's in tears or something because their parents shouting at them or, and they're nine years old, like that's not acceptable. So the advice I'd give is just let them enjoy it. You know, football is about enjoyment. It shouldn't feel a high pressure situation unless you are obviously turning pro and stuff like that. But even then you have to go back to, am I enjoying it? And, and what advice would you give? What have been the five keys to Leanne's success? She doesn't have to be five, but anyone out there that's looking at you, England caps galore, quadruple for Arsenal, would just dream of replicating your career. I think the words that I would use in summary is determination, resilience, you know, being willing to keep going when people are like almost like writing you off, almost kind of like have that strong mind and and know that you can achieve stuff if you put your mind to it and with the right support around you and I always believe like for me ask any top player if they believe that anyone's better than them when they step onto the pitch when Ronaldo Messi I'm not saying I'm Ronaldo or Messi but you know when top players step onto the football pitch they believe they're the best player whenever I step over that white line I believe I'm the best player on that pitch and I don't say that and I don't express that but I believe that in my mind I believe every chance I'm going to shoot I'm going to score I might not but you have to believe it you know, so for me, I think it's a lot of self-belief, a lot of self-motivation. And I think, you know, you just have to also surround yourself with the right people. And that's something I've learned really a lot over my, my life in not only my career, that 
you know, you have to make sure you surround yourself with the right people that want what's best for you. And I have a small circle now and I'm happy about that because I know my friends, I've got best friends since we were like five years old. It's not a problem, but you have to really make sure you surround yourself with the right people that want you to succeed because there's people that I thought were my friends that really are not. They just wanted tickets from me or, you know, Puma staff or something like that. And that's hurtful. But then you just have to kind of say, okay, this is it. You don't have to let people be, feel bad about themselves. You don't have to tell them. You just kind of cut them off and fade them out of your life. And any tips when you are just really feeling not motivated in the morning, you've got to go to a training session, you've got to turn up, but you just don't think you've got the legs in it. Anything to get someone up to peak, whether that's at the professional level or just getting out for a run in the morning, Carrie Brown. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think for me, I'm really lucky because when I feel like I need motivating, I, I literally go on YouTube and look at myself scoring a goal or something. And I think this is my why. But I think for people that don't have the ability and luxury of being able to do that, I think you have to have, set yourself goals. I think setting goals is so important. And, you know, people say to me, how do you get up every day? Or, you know, I'm going to go for a run after. And I'm, I'm not the kind of person that's obsessed with fitness. I'm not that kind of person. I just do it because I know I have to. And I know it's going to make me feel worse if I don't do it. But trying to relate to somebody that's not a professional athlete I think it's good for your mind I think after you finish the workout even if you go for a walk for 20 minutes I think your mind feels so much more like content after that you know you don't have to always go out and run yourself a marathon but even if it's a bike ride just kind of listen to your music walk I think it's so important for your mind and I think even there's days where you know I thought about retiring from football many years ago there's been times when I've not had this smooth sailing career as much as I've had a lot of success you know there's everybody's thought about it. Can I do this anymore? I don't know if I want to do this anymore because you might have had a coach that's not made you feel good or, you know, what the FA did and Mark Sampton, it made me think, you know what, like, it's hurtful, isn't it? But at the same time, what gives me that motivation is that I want to be better. I have my goals I want to set. I want to look good. You know what I mean? Even if you just want to look good, like, whatever it might be, you don't have to just go for a run because you want to be a professional athlete. So that's just my motivation to, to get up. And like I said, I have days where I'm like, I don't want to get up. I want to just watch TV. People like to hear that. That's good to hear for some people. Yeah, <laughs> you are I mean, human too. I, yeah, I mean, I think sometimes, you know, it's the same as when the kids say to me about diets and nutrition. And I'm like, obviously, it's good. You have to eat a balanced diet and eat well. But, you know, it's everything in moderation. You know, if a kid wants to eat a chocolate bar, I'm like, eat a chocolate bar. They're a kid. Do you know what I mean? I used to have sweets every day after school from my mum and dad. It was something that was really important to me. But obviously, it's important to eat correctly. But I just think you have to be realistic. And, and I'm not a robot, if that makes sense. Like, I'm a human. And, you know, I like to enjoy my life. But I also like to live a healthy life. So I just think life's always about balance. You talk about that balance. You've been very honest about how bleak and tough it was recovering from your ACL injury that almost wrote off your career. You were in some pretty fine um, company in that in the recovery room, weren't you, at Juventus? <laughs> yeah, I tell you what, I was literally towards the end of my recovery somewhat when I signed for Juventus uh, two years ago after Christmas. And, like, it was such an amazing... Like, I'm sure that the players, like, I was in the gym and it would be Buffon, Higuain. My first day I was there, I met uh, Dybala. He was, like, getting a massage and we were chatting and, like, Obviously, Allegri was there, the coach, and like, I got to do all my rehabilitation with all the men. So like, I had all of the men's staff working with me, and it was just amazing. Like, you know, it was like playing basketball with, with Quadrado and like, just falling around and kind of having fun. And it really, I don't think the men realized how much that helped me because I love football. 
absolutely love football. And when you're in the gym, and these are things I can't take pictures when I'm in there. I can't take videos, you know, they don't allow, and I wouldn't want to either because that's an invasion of privacy. But, you know, just because you don't see something on social media doesn't mean it's not happening. And, you know, there was one day I was on the treadmill and Buffon came next to me. And like, you know, and I was chatting to, I was talking to Quadrado about when we were both at Chelsea and just like, just stuff like that. And like, obviously like Irish, I've got a lot of professional footballers that are friends. So it's not because they're professional footballers, but when you looked up to people like Buffon and you're like, my God, like people would die for this opportunity. (laughs) I don't think they realized that there was days where when you're injured, it's awful. Like you just kind of like, God, I'm just going to the gym and I'm just going to ride a bike or I'm just going to do like sit-ups as opposed to like, you're used to like, going out there training hard, you know what I mean? So that's hard. But when I used to see them in the gym and they would say, how's it going? And Allegri would be like, when are you going to be back? Like, I don't think they fully understood how, how much of an uplift that was for me. And I think the timing of going to Juventus was fantastic. And the men's staff, like, were unbelievable to me. Absolutely unbelievable. So that was amazing being in the gym with those players. When you were alongside Buffon on the treadmill, were you far enough in your recovery that you could pace yourself alongside him? Or were you sadly not? <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't like that. It was cool. It's kind of like people just go on the treadmill and kind of like walk or warm up and stuff like that. And yeah. In Italy, it's very like, the, the training program is very intense, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. I thought going to Italy, like people often think, oh, you know, laid back. You know, when I played in Spain, it was like very laid back. But Italy, Italians are crazy when it comes to fitness and training. And I think that's the misconception that something I learned about going to Italy, that like they're not just like relaxing three days of the week, no training. Like they train the next day, like literally after, after they've played, they'll go to training the next day and train even harder. One day, I'll tell you, I was, they played Real Madrid at the Allianz Stadium. I was at the training ground the next day doing my recovery. And I said to my coach, Fabrizio, I said, Who, who's that over there on the men's training field? He said, looked at me. He said, who do you think it is? It's the men. I said, they're training. He was like, yeah, they're training. And he looked at me like I was weird for like thinking. And they just played Real Madrid the night before and they were back out on the pitch. Like, it's mad that people don't realise that because I think a lot of the time they think footballers just kind of like, it's easy to be a footballer. Yes, they get paid a lot of money, but they're also human. They're human. Like, so yeah, that was an unbelievable feeling to be able to be there and see that. So how good is Allegri's English? Because many saying he's a... On his way to the Premier League eventually. He keeps on getting tipped to a move here, but it hasn't happened yet. Could you see yeah, him in the Premier League? It's funny because people used to say to me at the training ground, they'd be like, oh, he wants to speak English with you. And I was <laughs> like, and it was during the time when it was this talk about him potentially going to Manchester United. Yeah. And obviously I didn't say anything to him about that. You know, like it's the same as when I was with Poch in Qatar at Christmas. I was like, I love him. He's a great guy, but I didn't. You know, we were talking, but I didn't say, please come to Man United. Because you know? <laughs> um, there's a level of professionalism. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, he was learning English, getting English lessons while I was there. But to say that he's definitely going to come to, you know, England, I don't know that for a fact. I spoke to him a few times, but we obviously didn't speak about it. He's not going to tell me, is he? Oh, yeah, by the way, I'm going to this <laughs> I, don't, I don't know him that well. But I think, you know, in Italy, people don't really speak English anyway. Mm. And I think, obviously, English is a universal language. So I think it's important. But it's interesting because obviously Poch and Allegri both are not at clubs. So it's interesting to see where they're going to end up next if they're waiting for that opportunity to come up. Um, But yeah, I like Allegri. He's a nice guy. How excited would you be if, I mean, how happy are you if Oli Gunnar Solskjaer at Manchester United or or do you want Poch in? Where are you? Poch in. in. (laughs) Because I'm always going to be respectful. I love Solskjaer. I mean, absolute legend for the club. You know, there's not a Manchester United fan that doesn't love Solskjaer. 
But I think long-term, I don't think he's the answer long-term. I think it's great that, you know, we've had some up and down in form, dips in form up here, down there. But I think we've obviously come alive and 10 games unbeaten just before the whole, obviously, stoppage. But I think that we just need to remember how we've been when we've been awful because there's been some really, really bad performances. You know, it's not about resting on the negatives, but I think long-term, I definitely want Pochettino to come in because... He's also become a friend of mine, him and Jesus Perez, the good people. Having spent like a few days with them in Qatar, like I can honestly say, like I was playing golf with, we were doing like, we were at a driving range together. We were on like a golf cart together. Like it was amazing. And just, you were doing wheelies um, on the golf cart, cart weren't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jesus was driving, but it was just like being able to just sit there and like, you know, like I said, not everything is able to be videoed on, and that's almost better. Mm. You know, like we're having dinner and chatting and just personal conversations and like, Poch and Jesus actually knew Nikki as well. Nikki came up in that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, just really good people. So I think like that doesn't mean because you're a good person, you're a great manager. But I think Poch is. I think Tottenham got rid of him way too early. Yeah, that was a big, big surprise, wasn't it? I think. So, yeah, I'd welcome Poch feet. at Man United. I'd welcome yeah. Poch at Man United. You just mentioned Nikki. We're going to talk about Nikki. He was a man I, I spent some time with as well. Just coincidentally, sat next to a Tottenham game, and I was curious to know who he is. Tell us all about him, because he's working with a few names we might know. I trained with him at UCLA um, in, like, December, January. And, like, we've just become really, really close friends. But he trains, like, you know, all of the male players, Thuridge, uh, Sane, Origi, like, Divock Origi, Josh King, um, trying to think, Benteke. He flies, he flew to um, the Maldives, Nikki did a few weeks ago, before this whole thing happened. Um to train Divock and he was training like Firmino over there as well. Like they're in the gym together. So, you know, and Nikki's not got the biggest following on Instagram. And I think that's what is interesting because people often judge people now based upon Instagram following. <laughs> and a lot of my mates say to me, wait, this guy, this guy uh, trains Sane and he trains Benteke and he's only got 6,000 followers. And it's like, yeah, cause he doesn't really care about that. That's not to say people that do care about that, you know, are bad, but I'm saying like Nikki is a fantastic person and just, he, brought my love back to the game. You know, his personality and how he is, the, the positivity and, you know, because after Juventus, I was not sure where, where, what was next for me. And I still am not sure what's next, what team I'm going to play for and stuff like that necessarily. I'm looking over a few different things, but this is obviously crazy time at the moment. But mm. Nicky really just made me fall back in love with the game again by his positive reinforcement and just like, you know, he's just a great guy. So I definitely ask people to check him out 100% because he's got some great, he's actually got some really good training videos at the moment as well that he's doing for free online. Did we um, say his surname? Nikki Nick, Hollander. Nikki Hollander. We did. Yeah. We did. He's I when he's mentioned his name, I was like, oh he's a he's got a fantastic mentality about a great yes. winning mentality. Well how are you feeling about your future now? Because after everything we've talked about with FIFRO it that's just a really hard time. I've I've talked to a lot of journalists who are out of sports journalists are out of out of work, but we know it's going to come back in terms of securing a new club, especially when your season's impacted as you said, from March, exactly the season that we're in now. Yeah, I mean, for me, when I left Juventus last July, I um, went back to New York and then I started a new project here in LA about bringing a professional women's team to Los Angeles. But I think for me, um, what's next? You know, I like doing like TV work and I also like to be free. And I went home a few weeks ago and I was doing a lot of TV work and I absolutely love it. And I almost feel like, you know, TV and radio and those kind of things is almost like my calling. I feel like I come alive when I, especially when it's live TV, I absolutely love it and I really enjoy it. So I'm just trying to like keep those doors open. I want to play still, 
but I also don't want to, when you play on a team, they almost own you. So you mm. can't really do anything. So if I was playing for a team, say um, last year when I came to Qatar with being sports, it was one of the best moments. Like, honestly, it was amazing. Absolutely loved it. I wouldn't have been able to come. And that would have been something that would have really annoyed me. So I feel mm. like I'm transitioning into like more TV stuff, but I still want to play. But I don't want to sign a contract that makes me then have no freedom to do that. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Because yeah. I really, I almost enjoyed being in Qatar for those five weeks of being sports than I did playing, if that makes sense. And I love playing, but I just love being around positive people. And I do think there's an environment out there for me still that I can be around good people, positivity and play because I love playing football as well. Yeah. But I just don't want to sign for a team um, and I think a lot of teams in Europe, and I'm going on a bit, but they often sign me because I'm a good player, I'd like to think, but they want me to almost go there and, and like catapult their teams to a different level when it comes mm -hmm. to like, we've got this player, she's done this, she's done that, and we want to use her and almost zap my energy. Yeah. And not yeah. really like, just let me just play football as opposed to, you know, like even at Juventus, like they were fantastic, but I had to say to them in the end, like, I just don't want to do interviews about my sexuality because I'm not Leanne the gay footballer. I'm a footballer that happens to be gay. Yeah. And that doesn't, that's not my definition. You know, like I'm a footballer. I look at everything I've done in my career. And I often think sometimes teams, when I say use me, but they want me to come because they're like, oh, look, we've got somebody that, and we accept like people that are gay. And, you know, we accept people. And I'm like, that's fantastic. But I just don't want to go to, and I think sometimes in Europe, that's kind of what it's like. And I just want to go somewhere and play somewhere that I just feel comfortable and I can just be free yeah. as well as disciplined to train because I'm disciplined anyway yeah and there are I would think clubs in the WSL that would give you that freedom would you do you know what I never want to close the door and I've had a couple of offers but I don't like living in England <laughs> and that's the truth like it's not necessarily that I need to live in LA because I've lived in most of my American career I've lived on the east coast in places that are freezing in the winter mm. New York Buffalo Philadelphia you know so but at the same time I just I like I love like the freedom here and how people embrace you and they say good morning in the morning and I think sometimes people think Americans are over the top but I find in England we're very closed off to people and I don't know why that is but I love being in America that's my happy place and I feel happiest when I'm here but I would never close the door but I just think with everything that happened with the FA and with the Mark Sampson and former teammates that I feel like don't support me yeah I can have a message with them every now and again but me facing that every single day every single time I do an interview it's brought up when I'm there I feel like mm. it's just making me go backwards you know what I'm trying to say when we're talking about it, I'm, I'm happy to talk about yeah. it but yeah I'm saying that when I'm talking like I feel like it's gonna be oh there's Leanne she's the one that with Eniola Raluco and not there's Leanne she's won the quadruple yeah. you know what I mean and yeah. that's too much for me to have to I don't need that I don't no. really need that in my life so that's really my reasoning but you know, I'm not against um, going back to play. It's just not what I can't really vividly see that right now. Yeah. Conversely, would you, um, if the FA asked to speak to you about talking to schools or clubs about female coaching and racism and the correct behavior, would that be something you would welcome? 100%. 100%. Completely. I mean, yeah, completely. Like I said, I don't hold grudges. I want to go back to your career and you were talking about the coaches that had a big impact on you. And another man, I think, who so rarely gets talked about in the narrative, but was so important, Vic Akers. Well, I mean, I mentioned Vic earlier and he's the person that found me 
when I was nine years old in South East London. And then he was my coach. And he, I grew up obviously playing for Arsenal and I made my debut when I was 14 and he was the manager. But, you know, Vic Akers was Arsenal Football Club women, Arsenal ladies back in the day. Now it's Arsenal women. And he founded the club, you know, along with the fact that he worked for the men. You know, he worked as the men's kit manager. And I feel like him and Dave, like David Dean was a huge part in the women's game. He, had a, he loved, like, we were always ahead of the game when it comes to, you know, doing the same as the men, being able to eat at the training ground. This was like, what, when I was 17? So you're talking about my age myself now, like 15 <laughs> years ago or so, 14 years ago. So, you know, the fact that we had Vic to be able to bridge that gap between the men and the women was fantastic. And, you know, even if people might not have got along with him or whatever, they still respected him. When Vic Akers walks into the room, everyone's like, oh, there's Vic, there's Vic. You know, and he, he has that aura about him. For somebody that's invested so much in the women's game and in football, it's important that he, he gets that love of the game back again. So for me, I can't thank Vic Akers enough for everything he's done in my career. And, you know, even though he tried to change me and make me into an Arsenal fan, always he used to take me into the dressing room at Highbury I used to clean the boots of like Overmars Dennis Burkamp. I used to get to meet all the players he used to make me meet he used to get me to meet them every single opportunity I could right and then there was one time we played they were playing against Man United and I went into the Man United changing room and I never forget because Vic was at, it was more like banter he tried to change me and he got Sir Bobby Cholton <gasps> to wait for me in the tunnel at Highbury and I was in the dressing room. He said, come on, come on, come on. And I said, what? And I walked out and I was like, oh my God. And I was only like 13 and it was Sir Bobby Cholton just like waiting to meet me to take a picture. And, and you know, Vic always done, like David Beckham, the same thing. He got me to meet loads of people, like, because he just knew that I had something special. Hence the fact he signed me on my first trial when I was nine. So I can't think, thank Vic enough for everything he's done for me and my mum and dad, because you know, Vic always gets my dad tickets for games and my dad's a gooner. So, you know, stuff like that. I've got loads. He won him over. From, well, my dad's been an Arsenal <laughs> fan since he was young. Unfortunately, it's the only thing we disagree on. People say to him, Jeff, how's your daughter? A Man United fan. And he says, ask her uncle. Because obviously it would have been, my dad's an Arsenal fan. He's like my best friend. Um, and also, um, I grew up playing for Arsenal, so it would have been easier to support them. But yeah. you can't. You can't change your support. <laughs> no, I fell in love with Man United because of Eric Cantona. And, you know, and, and that was it, really. I went to a game and I loved them from when I was, like, five. But for me, like, Vic Akers will always be someone I'll hold in the highest regard, you know, completely. What impact did he have on you as a coach? I think the thing with Vic, right, we had, like, so... What he used to do is he used to do exactly what the men did. So we would have, like, it was the Arsenal way. And we did the same as the men, training-wise, you know, um, days off and stuff like that and I think he tried to implement what Arsene Wenger was doing with us patterns of play stuff like that and I think like I said he wasn't exactly the most like strategic coach when it comes to tactics but he got together the best players and everybody respected him and he put on training sessions that we all had fun and that was the most important and he had fun as well and that's why we were so successful it wasn't one of those things where it was over coaching and that's why I loved it. Like, it wasn't like we were doing all these formations and all that. Like, he used to be like, let them worry about us. And then we went unbeaten, like, so many games. Like, you know what I mean? And we used to absolutely annihilate teams. Good teams as well. And for you, ultimately, looking back on your career, what do you think were the greatest things that you've learned that you'll take from it now and going, going forward? 
I think if I look back on my career, I think I would be so proud of how much I've achieved. Um, and I think I said to my dad the other day, it was almost like I achieved my career back to front. So it was almost like, yeah, I've continued to win, but I won everything by the time I was like 17. So it was like, I achieved everything like at a young age and then kind of like stayed at the same club for 12 years. Um, and then, you know, moved to America, moved around a lot of different clubs. Cause I told you about the whole expansion mm. and draft and all that. But I think I'm really, I'm actually, sometimes I never, you know, really think to myself, I'm really proud of myself. I know I've done a lot, but I think it's important to be like, do you know what? I've done a lot, but then also not rest on your laurels, you know, literally I want more. I want more. I want to be better. I want to, you know, I want to own my own team. I want to be an owner of a team. I have all these different dreams and aspirations and goals of what I want to do. And, and that's what I want to do. And, and I don't think there's anything that can stop you if you really want to do something. So I am quite proud of myself and what I've achieved. And I hope I can, I know I'm going to achieve even more success. I'm going to ask about the human in the human, superhuman, just for fun now. Can you remember a time where you were completely humiliated on the pitch but I'm going to then twist it. I'm going to take you back to when you were five, six, seven, eight, nine. Is there one moment when it's stuck in your mind as a kid where someone absolutely did you on the pitch and it really stuck in your head? Hmm. When I was really, really young. Just no. a moment, an early no, moment. No, I don't, you know what? I don't remember anyone, because not to be like that, but I was always like, when I was really, really small, I was always like one of the best players on the team. Mm -hmm. So I felt like I would always be the one that was getting all the glory. But I tell you what I did on my first game. Might not answer your question, but I <laughs> my first ever game for the boys team. Mm. We won one nil, and I I goal snatched from my friend. And even when <gasps> I see him now, like glory. 20, 25 years later, oh. he always says to me, "We're good friends, actually, like the family." And um, it, it was literally about to go in, and I kicked it in on the line, and I ran <laughs> off like Alan Shearer style, <laughs> my hand in the air, and he never forgets it. And we had banter about it. like he was really obviously angry. Um, and I didn't even think I did was wrong at the time, but now I realize it, I mean, it wasn't necessarily wrong, but it was not right, was it? Like to take someone's goal when it's going in. But I was just a kid that just, were, when I saw the ball, I just thought I just put it in the back of the net. So that's something that I remember like it was yesterday. And that was when I was six years old. And I literally took it from him. And it's, we still talk about it now when I see him. Make amends now on the Be Inspired podcast. What's his name? And apologize. His well, his name's Joe Murphy. And I remember it like it was yesterday and I am sorry. And I said it to him before. We have banter about it now. He's a good friend of mine and his family are really great people. My mum and dad have grown up with them. But yeah, so that was that. <laughs> and what was the team? Elms. E-L-L-E-L-M-S. Still going? Elms. Yes and no. It is, but it's not as like, because the whole family like ran the team. Like every coach was someone's family member and stuff like that. But yeah. now, they, I actually went and did a documentary there filmed a documentary a few months ago and it made me sad that like it just looked different like the changing rooms mm. have been painted it's more like a school now where the fields were um but it was very nostalgia at its finest but yeah they've still got a couple of teams running but not particularly okay should we give them a shout out now your former team how they're running yes who are Hi, they elms elms fc in elms Catford, southeast london Keep playing, keep going, take inspiration from the great Leanne. And Leanne, I also want to ask you um, any of those, the human moments of the superhuman, what were your darkest days on the pitch that you were like, oh, this is, I want the ground to swallow me up right now? You know what? There's one particular time in the Euros 2009 in Finland, and I'd just come on against the Netherlands in the semi final of the European Championships. 
and uh, and I, they had these Lucozade gels. I don't know if you've seen them. They don't really have them as much anymore, but they were supposed mm. to give you energy. And I'm sitting on the bench and I'm really nervous. I mean, this was like when I was probably about, what, 19 or something? Really nervous coming into the game. So I took like about six of them, literally. <laughs> I, I, and you're only supposed to take one. And I just thought, I'm just going to take them. Got onto the pitch and I felt a bit sick, right? But I was thinking like, and, you're, and the thing is, the misconception is when you're a sub, right? They say, oh, you've got fresh legs. You're supposed to come in and you're supposed to do that. Well, it's not actually as easy as you'd think mm. because you're usually, the, it takes a little while to get up to the speed of play and, you know, those kind of things. So the ball came to me and we were, it was 1-1 at the time. Literally, I was about two yards out from goal and I kicked it over the goal, right? Over the bar. And I swear to you, in my whole career, I've never <laughs> done that, right? And it was European Championship semi-final, oh. right? Against the Netherlands. And I swear, if I did this a hundred times, I would maybe do it once, if that. You could not <laughs> miss, right? It was the worst miss of my career. And I don't know how I did it. It's actually on the internet. I say this to the kids that I train sometimes. I'm like, listen, the easiest chances are the hardest sometimes. And unfortunately, I know about this from my own experience, right? <laughs> Thankfully, Jill Scott scored the goal and we won. But that was something that we just like, I was like, I said this to my dad and he was like, honestly, darling, he said, you couldn't do it again. You tried at least, like, at least we won in the end. And I was like, yeah, that's the most important thing that we won. But I would not have been able to live with myself. I still felt devastated. But like, if we would have lost that game and I missed that chance, like, but that's something that I felt like I wanted the ground to swallow me up completely. How do you, I mean, Jill, Jill scoring helped, but, but ultimately, how do you bounce back up? from moments like that dad listen to dad listen to the people you trust with good advice yeah and to be honest because we, there was this amazing like euphoria because we won mm. no one really remembered it thankfully <laughs> like no one really said that I met me and Jill were roommates and I was like oh I said I can't believe it like what a nightmare but like it wasn't like anyone dwelled on it because they just remembered Jill scoring so that was actually a good thing I think yeah. now if this was now with social media I probably would have wanted to crawl underneath a rock with but people maybe, coming at you, you know? Yeah. Maybe getting into a final, it still would have been missed, even in this day and age. What's your best tip, though, for then the absolute clangers, which you got out of one? But what's your tip for picking yourself back up again? I think you just got to get to your next training session mm. as quick as you can in your next game. I remember when there's been times when I've lost games with teams. And if you have a midweek game, it's like, I almost feel like it's the best thing. But then if you've had an absolute mare, say your team's been absolutely hammered, then you're probably not going to want that next game. But from my experience, I think, being able to just get back out there and go for a run or, you know, sometimes after, I'm not really a big runner. I'm making it sound like I'm some fitness guru, but I'm not. And like when I've had a game, like sometimes I'll go for a run after a game if I've not to sprint, but just to get clear my mind. Because when I lose, I'm a nightmare. I'm an absolute nightmare. Like I'm not a bad loser, but I just can't speak. It like ruins me for days. Got a little bit better at it because in America, it's a bit more competitive, but anyone can beat anyone. So I kind of had to get used to losing as crazy as that sounds. But I think, you just got to get back out there again and just keep going because, you know, you don't become a bad player overnight as, just as much as you don't become a, a great player overnight, you know? So whenever you're going through, like, if I've gone through, like, a goal drought when I played at Arsenal, not, not many times, but say you go a few games, when I say drought, like, without scoring, my biggest mistake would be I tried too hard. So you hit the ball too hard and it ends up tricking into the goalkeeper. And my dad said to me, like, don't try too hard and then it can happen. And once you then score one goal, look at Harry Kane. Anything mm. he touches goes in. But then when you're a centre forward and you're going through that time where you ain't scoring, everything you touch is doesn't go in or it will be blocked or the defender will do a last minute tackle or something like that and the luck's not on your side. So, yeah. Get back on the horse. That, yes. That's the message. 
Leanne, I've kept you a very long time and I, I know. keep talking I'm to you all night. Dumb. I'm sitting on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> you are, like, just to set, we'll explain this, shall we? In this weird, wacky world we are all in, you have got your phone on the bed. I've sat you down on the floor to give, yeah. give us a nice, clean, clean background the, and the I best the angle. Pillows, <laughs> I had the pillows and everything behind me on the bed. I was ready with no headphones on. And then I was like, can't use those other headphones. Got to sit on the floor. My, 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 my bum's gone numb. <laughs> Would Honestly, I make a good coach? Like, yeah, you'd be a great coach. You're like, can you do this? Can you do that? No, but to be honest, um, it's been a fantastic, Carrie. I've had a great time and, you know, it's been great. And, and uh, I'm looking forward to people being able to listen and, and hopefully they can get some, you know, inspiration and, and reality from what we've said. So thank you. Thank you so much. I'm going to ask you one more thing because I'm demanding. Oh, it's that, two you more said things. That 20 minutes ago. Did I? Great coach. <laughs> That's what coaches always do. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to ask you to give a pep talk to two people, two types of people, listeners who've been listening in today. The ones that, first of all, were listening to us on the podcast when they went for the run, they've come back, they've had their run, they've ticked that off. What's your team talk to them, Coach Leanne Sanderson? Well done, everyone, for going for that run or the jog or the bike ride. And it's amazing that you continue to just keep giving yourself a routine. And good luck again tomorrow and do exactly the same thing, whatever you need to do to make yourself feel good. And for those that are thinking of pulling on their trainers, thinking of getting that 10 minutes, thinking of just going for a walk, thinking of just changing up, thinking of doing something to make themselves happy. Yeah, I think for me, when there's been days when I felt that way, whenever I've made myself feel better is when I've got up, showered, you know, and gone for a walk or gone for a run or gone for a bike ride. And, you know, for me, I think it's important to just keep trying to do the things that you would normally do in this crazy world. But I completely empathize why it's difficult, but I would advise you just please go for a walk for your mind because you'll definitely feel better after it. And someone that just wants that motivation to get out for a run, to get out and go hardcore. Well, somebody like me that wants motivation, I'll talk to myself now because I'm going to go for a run after I come off the phone to you. But yeah, just keep going, keep doing what you're doing and whatever you need to do. I know gyms are closed and I know, you know, there's not many things you can do, but you can really train anywhere. I've trained at underground car parks. I've trained at roundabouts. I've trained all over the world and you can train anywhere. So keep going with the amazing work and we're all in this together.